Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Lucas. And this is Double Blind. Much of science news today has been reduced to brief stories with flashy headlines, but no real details behind them. The goal of this podcast is to change that. We're reporting on breaking science-related news stories in a responsible way. So if you're curious, come with us. We think it'll be a lot of fun. This week on Double Blind, a web of carbon, how engineers are getting a hand or eight from spiders. And the universal donor, how your blood type might not matter in the future. Okay, Lucas, why don't you start us off today? Cool. Well, let's talk about spiders. Very specifically, let's talk about spider webs. Because spider webs are actually kind of amazing things. The silk that makes up a spider web is in fact the second strongest known biological material there is. Wow. Yeah. After what? I, I, okay, can, can you guess what the strongest known biological material is? Biological material. I actually have no idea why I'm asking you this because it's so unbelievably obscure. Okay. And so, un- I, I, like, there's no way I could have guessed it. Okay. What is it? Limpet teeth. <laughs> limpet teeth? Limpet teeth. So, so limpets are a type of sea snail. You sort of see them, like, in, uh, in tidal zones. You see them, like... Yeah, they're those flat ones, right? Up against rocks? The, the flat ones that are kind of look like a bit of a cone. Right. Yeah, that are, like, up against rocks. Exactly. So their teeth which are microscopic in terms of in terms of tensile strength. Okay. Well, that, that's bonkers. But back to the second strongest. So back to the second strongest, which is what we're talking about today. Spider silk has a tensile strength of 10 gigapascals. Okay, so I do not have a clue what that number means. That's understandable. So a pascal is a unit of pressure and just to give some context to that, 10 gigapascals in terms of tensile strength so strength Mm -hmm. of pulling on it how much you need to pull on it before it breaks how much pressure you need to put on it before it breaks that's about five times as strong as nylon okay so it's not insane i mean that sounds like a really big number gigapascals that's not an insane number but in terms of biological fibers that's pretty great Okay, so what is that, like, Like in theory, what could you attach to a piece of spider silk before it broke? Well, not much, as you know, because you probably <laughs> pulled down a spider web, right? Yeah. This is, this is all about the strength-to-weight ratio. But it is interesting because people are looking at a lot of different applications of spider silk. Okay. They're looking at it in terms of high-performance clothing, in terms of electrical devices, And the one that I found most fascinating is they're looking at a lot of medical applications with spider cell. Okay, This includes nerve regeneration and ligament repair. Whoa. So essentially using spider silk as this fiber, which apparently it's pretty easy for a body to accept as it's another biological material. Weird. Yeah. I mean, I guess one big question is what is spider silk? And that was actually kind of hard for me to figure out. Like what is it made of, you mean? Yeah, what's it made of? Right? Okay. <laughs> so the authors describe it as a semi-crystalline biopolymer. All right, go on. The best I could figure out is it's a semi-amorphous, so meaning it doesn't have a completely regular structure. Okay. Repeating series of amino acids and other organic compounds. Hmm. So it's complicated what it is, but it's essentially 
the spider incorporating many organic substances into a fiber. All right. Which can then be spun out into a web. Okay, I'll buy that. Are we, this spider silk that's being used for all of these interesting applications, are we actually, are these being like extracted from spiders' butts? or? Are... So, so that's actually a big problem. is because researchers have tested natural spider webs and they've found they've got these amazing properties, but they've also, you know, created spider farms. Oh, that sounds terrifying. (laughs) Exactly what it sounds like to produce silk. And they found that the silk spun by these spiders in captivity was significantly less strong than the ones from nature. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. So with these amazing potential applications and this issue of you know the readily available captive spider silk is less strong researchers are looking for ways to improve the properties of spider silk okay this brings us to the experiment we're talking about which is where researchers simply sprayed spiders with a very fine mist of water which they'd mixed a couple of very special things into okay so they try this with two substances the first one is called carbon nanotubules. Okay, so there's uh, that. that is a buzzword. That is being thrown around a lot. Buzzword, exactly. So what this is, it is a very tiny tube made of a single layer of carbon atoms. Okay. So when I say very tiny, I mean very tiny. I mean it's about a nanometer in diameter. Which is really, really small. It's really small. So think of like a centimeter, which is like pretty much the width of one of your fingernails. Mm-hmm. Think of that. You could fit... 10 million of these tubes side by side to cross your fingernail. Okay, so way smaller than we can see with the naked eye. Way smaller than we can see with the naked eye. Exactly. Okay, cool. So that was one substance they tried. All right. The second substance they tried is another buzzword called graphene. Yeah, that that is another one that I've heard a lot. I actually don't know exactly what graphene is. Right. Okay, so you probably heard about it when the discoverers of graphene won the Nobel Prize a few years ago. Okay. What it is, is it's sheets of carbon atoms. So instead of tubes, they're just simple sheets, like, you know, phyllo pastry. Interesting. But they're only one atom thick. Wow, that is... How, how the heck do they make that? Right? The earliest method of making graphene was so simple. You've, you might have even done it before. Okay. What, what they did is they took a piece of graphite... Mm-hmm. Graphite's a substance which is essentially just carbon atoms. Okay. And the researchers took a piece of scotch tape and stuck it against the graphite <laughs> and then pulled it off. And, and and then that was it. And that that actually pulls off like a single layer of carbon atoms? Yeah, apparently. What? Which is which is kind of crazy. Oh. Yeah. So you can try this at home. You can make Make graphene at home. And, and you can try it at home and win, win a Nobel Prize for it. Okay, we don't guarantee that. Yeah, we, no, that's true. <laughs> but that's what they did. <laughs> they, they developed it after that. But that was the basic starting procedure was scotch tape Crazy. and graphite. Yeah. So back to spiders after that little tangent. Right. What researchers did is they took little flakes of this stuff, graphene, and then mixed it into the water and then sprayed the spiders with it. Okay. So they, they had one set where they were trying little bits of carbon nanotubes and one set with little bits, little flakes of graphene. Okay. So we've got, we're spraying the spiders with water with sheets of carbon and yep. water with 
tubes, tubes of, carbon. of carbon. Exactly. And the reason the researchers did it is because these substances are very strong for how much they weigh. Mm -hmm. Graphene is a hundred times stronger than steel by weight. Wow. Yeah, it's impressive. So the researchers then collected the silk that was produced by these spiders and after analysis found that there was indeed, you know, carbon nanotubes and graphene in or on the silk. So it did make it through. We think it made it okay. through. The issue with that is the researchers are kind of assuming that the spiders indeed incorporated these substances into the webs. They were, of course, spun in an environment where they were constantly being misted with water, with graphene, and nanotubules in it. Uh, so it could have come in after the fact. That's the question. And the paper doesn't really determine that. What they say is they are assuming it's being incorporated because <laughs> of the next thing that they did, the results of okay. the next test. So the first test was they found that it was either inside or on top. The second test is they tested the tensile strength of these fibers. Okay. Remember the average spider web was about 10 gigapascals? Mm -hmm. The strongest one of these they tested was close to 50. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. So a five-fold increase in tensile strength. Jeez. Which is amazing. And the researchers said that if the graphene and nanotubules had just fallen on top of the web, they couldn't think of a reason that it would be so strong. Right. I guess they didn't try like just spraying normal spider webs with these compounds. <laughs> you know, that's a really good idea. <laughs> let's just let's just quickly spray some spider webs with these and just see whether they also get really strong. That's actually a very good point. I like the way you think, Jesse. Well, I'm telling you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go get some graphene. I'm going to get some scotch tape. I'm yeah. going to go into the woods and I'm going <laughs> to... Gonna spray a spider web. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not all of the spider webs spun under these conditions ended up with this strong. Some were, in fact, mm. 10 times weaker than the average spider web. Okay. In fact, it increased the range of strength greatly. So clearly, mm. some spiders didn't do well in this situation. Right. But some did exceptionally. And it's unclear what actually determined the differences between those. Huh. That's. That's interesting. Yeah. In another test, we're talking about tensile strength here, so pulling on it. Right. In another test, which is known as the toughness test, researchers measure how much energy you have to input to a substance to deform it. And they found that the toughness measurement of this reinforced spider silk was 2.1 gigapascals, which might not mean much, mm -hmm. but that's the toughest fiber known. Whoa. Not just natural, that's tougher than Kevlar. Holy crap. Yeah. That's really cool. So is that something that is going to be further developed then? Like Completely. So this is definitely an area of research which is really early, but it's going to be explored further without a doubt. Mm -hmm. That'd be pretty cool. So how, how far are we away from like flying in aircraft that are made out of spider silk? A long way. Okay. A long, long way. There's a lot still to do on this. This is super early research. This is mm -hmm. purely proof of maybe concept they need to figure out how it's actually being incorporated they need to figure out why some spiders do really well under these conditions and why some spiders do really poorly there's a lot of work to still do here but it's promising early results and it's a great reminder of how human engineers can work with nature to create some truly amazing materials yeah that's really neat when we start to see all these areas of science kind of coming together to create new things So let's talk about blood type for a little bit. All right. Um, 
as a lot of us know, blood transfusion is hugely important in medicine. Mm -hmm. I looked up some numbers and it turns out uh, 20,346 liters of donated blood is used daily in the U.S. and Canada. Daily? Daily. You said that number and I thought that was going to be an annual number. <laughs> yeah, that is daily. So that is That's daily. That is about the same volume as an adult gray whale. <laughs> <laughs> Love that comparison. Every single day. Or um, for another fun one, it's also the same amount of water approximately in each eruption of Old Faithful, <laughs> which is the geyser in Yellowstone Park. <laughs> oh, there's a so horror there's... movie in that somewhere. <laughs> it's like the shining part, too. Exactly. Um yeah, so that is, that is a lot of donated blood that's used. It's it's a hugely important part of the the medical world. And so, as a lot of us know as well, um, there are many different blood types. Mm-hmm. Uh, the main ones we know of and think about are the ABO grouping, um, right? Whether blood types are A, B, O, or AB, okay, um, and whether they're positive or negative. But there are actually thirty two known blood types. Really? Yeah. Um, most of them are pretty uncommon and involve relatively unimportant distinctions between them. Okay. And so what we're mainly going to talk about today is that ABO grouping. Okay. Sounds That's good. That's also what, what most people know about. If, if they know their blood type, most of the time it's, oh yeah, I'm, my blood type is type A. Yeah. Um, it's, it's what we know. And certain types can, go to, can give to other types and certain types can't give to other types, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's what we're going to get into here. Okay. Before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about what those types actually mean. Yeah. Um, What does it mean when I say that I have type A blood? So first of all, there are two important antigens that are at play here. Now, an antigen is a sugar molecule which is attached to the red blood cell. Okay. So we've got all this blood in our body. And if I'm type A, that means I have a type A antigen on every blood cell in my body. Okay. This little sugar molecule attached to the outside. Okay, so everyone's the same. Everyone has the same sugar molecule attached in the same way. If you're type A, yes. A person of type B blood has the type B antigen attached to all of their blood cells. Okay. If you're type AB, Mm -hmm. you have both of them. Okay. You have both of them attached to each cell? Yes. Okay. Every cell has both antigens. If you're type O, you have neither the A nor the B antigens on your blood cells. So that's what differentiates the actual blood types. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, as you mentioned, not all people can donate blood to all other people. O, type O blood is the universal donor, mm-hmm. and type AB is the universal receiver. Okay. And so I didn't actually know why this was the case either, so I looked into it. Yeah. And it's actually quite interesting. So in our bloodstream are antibodies, and antibodies are proteins that basically target certain things to be attacked by our system. They tell our system what to attack. Exactly. So if you get a cold, your body forms antibodies to attack that particular virus. And then your white blood cells and immune system know to attack that virus. Okay. As it turns out, if you have type A blood, which means you have the A antigen on your blood cells, Mm -hmm. you have an antibody for the B antigen. Uh Oh, okay. Which means if blood cells show up in your bloodstream, which have that B antigen on them, your body will attack it as a foreign invader. Oh. Yeah. So if you have type B blood, your body will attack any blood cells that have type A antigen because you have the antibody for the type A antigen. Right. 
So as I mentioned, AB blood, the AB blood type yeah. means you have both the A and B antigens. Because of this, you actually don't have any antibodies for either of those antigens because you've, you have both of them in your system. Of course. It recognizes both of them as your own, yourself. Exactly. Which means that you can accept any type of blood into your body because you don't have anything telling your immune system to attack anything in that blood. If you have type O blood, which means no antigens on the blood cells, none of those sugar molecules, mm -hmm. that means you have the antibodies for both the A and B types. So you'll attack anything. Exactly. Any blood that is not O, any blood with any of those antigen markers, right. your body will attack as a foreign object. Okay. So that, that's why O is the universal donor and AB is the universal receiver. Okay. So you can see the value of having a lot of type O blood on hand at a hospital or for paramedics. Absolutely. It works for everybody. And if you don't have time to test someone's blood type, say um, in an emergency you got to go with type O because that's the only one that people are likely to not react to. Mm -hmm. So let's get back to the actual story now that we've had our crash course in how blood types work. Yeah, appreciate that. This story comes out of UBC, which is in my current hometown of Vancouver, hmm. um, where researchers have created a new enzyme which can convert type A and B blood and AB to become type O. Whoa. So they can actually turn those other blood types, once they've been taken out as a, as a blood donation, to become type O, that universal donor. Whoa. That sounds super useful. Yeah, it would be hugely useful. If we yeah. could convert all blood to be that universal donor type, yeah. it would solve a lot of the blood shortage issues we have in a lot of places. Sometimes those can be caused by just not having the right types of blood. Right. Well... Let's start off. What's an enzyme? Okay. So an enzyme is a molecule that facilitates or helps a reaction take place. Okay. So what this particular enzyme does is it targets the antigens on the blood cells and removes them. So it's basically chopping those sugar molecules off of your red blood cells. Huh. I can definitely visualize that. And then once those A and B antigens are gone, the blood is effectively type O because it won't be targeted by any bodies that contain the antibodies. Right. Do you have to like filter the antigens out or is it, does it just matter that they're not attached to the blood cells anymore? It just matters that they're not on those blood cells. That's the key right. marker. The antibodies okay. are looking for blood cells that have this antigen on them. Okay. This is actually something that it turns out has been done before, much like a lot of the studies we cover. It's like we've tried this in the past, but it was less effective. With the previous enzyme that was developed quite a while ago, um, it took far too much of the particular enzyme to actually accomplish the task. So it was just not efficient. It was not effective. Right. So this time they've managed to make a much more efficient enzyme. Um, it's still not perfect, and we'll get to that in a minute, but okay. I think the story of how they created it is pretty fascinating. All right. What they started with is the enzyme family that's called 98 glycoside hydrolase. Oh, yeah. Totally. 90, yeah, that family. Totally. Nope, that one. The name of the family is not important. Where it comes from is... Oh, yeah? The enzyme actually comes from an organism called Streptococcus pneumoniae. Oh, is that strep throat? It's not strep throat. Streptococcus pneumoniae was actually a major cause of pneumonia in the 19th century. Okay. And today, it's responsible for meningitis, bronchitis, and oh. conjunctivitis, among a whole number of other infections. Wow. So this is a cool example of taking something dangerous and actually using it for good, as it were. Yeah. They started with this enzyme because it already was responsible for removing antigens from blood cells 
and so it seemed like a good starting point to develop something that could actually be used uh, large scale on human blood. So the researchers used a relatively new technique called directed evolution. Oh, oh, that sounds cool, but I have no idea what that is. So basically what directed evolution means is that they inserted a huge number of mutations into the gene that codes for the enzyme. Okay. Then in each generation, they selected the enzymes that were the most effective at snipping off these sugar molecules. So they threw a bunch of mutations in there, looked at what the results were, and then picked the most effective ones. And then they used those ones for the next round of testing. So they like randomly rolled a whole lot of dice and then picked the ones that seemed to get the numbers they wanted. Yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. Okay. Um, In five generations of this process, they were able to make the enzyme that they started with 170 times more efficient. Wow. Yeah. So this is pretty cool. But unfortunately, it's not quite ready for prime time yet. Okay. The researchers themselves uh, admit that before this could be used in a clinical setting, it would need to be made a lot cheaper and more efficient still. It's still a bit too slow and too expensive to be used um, in actual clinics with patients. Okay. One of the big problems is that while the enzyme removed the vast majority of these A and B antigens from the blood cells, it missed some of them. How big of a problem is that? Well, it couldn't be used clinically until it was 100% effective, because even a few foreign blood cells with the wrong antigens can trigger a strong immune response. Oh, gotcha. Our bodies are actually amazingly good at getting rid of stuff that doesn't belong there. Right. So that's pretty much the story. I think this is a pretty cool stepping stone story. This paper is definitely going to lead the way to more similar research. If we could develop something that worked effectively in a clinical setting that could convert blood donations to all be type O, it would be incredibly good for medicine. I can imagine that. I mean, like that would just be standard procedure, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. You give blood and then antigens are snipped off and it's just all universal donor. And then we can, we can all accept it without having to have any issues. That sounds like a dream come true for a lot of doctors, I'm sure. Yeah, it'd be really, really cool. So I really hope they do more research. And it's pretty cool that it's happening uh, right here in my hometown. That's all for this week. We've got links to all the studies we discussed and more in this episode's show notes. You can find those at our website, doubleblindscience.com. We hope you've enjoyed this week's foray into science news. Check back next week and we'll have two new and exciting stories for you. Did you see something in the news you'd like us to cover? Maybe a headline seems too good to be true or something that's just not explained clearly enough? Give us a shout, stories at doubleblindscience.com or we're also on Twitter at doubleblindsci. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. That's that is a, that is crazy. How do you how the frick? What is ah? We live in a crazy world. <laughs>any tweezers like that seems impossible that seems impossible i don't believe that